Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet two scientists who are tracking the space junk that orbits the moon, and we find out what happened when a teacher tried to have errors in a physics textbook corrected. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in renewable energy, wearable sensor technology, display materials, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by April 8th for the 242nd Electrochemical Society meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, in October 2022. Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details about abstract submission. And join ECS in accelerating science. This week, a piece of a rocket is expected to crash onto the surface of the moon. To find out more about the human-made detritus that orbits the moon, Physics World's Margaret Harris caught up with two lunar space junk experts. The U.S. National Air and Space Administration, or NASA, keeps track of more than 23,000 pieces of debris orbiting the Earth. Most of this so-called space junk is in low Earth orbit, where it poses an increasing hazard to astronauts visiting the International Space Station, as well as commercial and military satellites. But unfortunately, Earth orbit isn't the only part of space that's cluttered with human-built rubbish. There's also some space junk orbiting the Moon, And it's this lunar space junk that's a focus of a new research project being led by Roberto Forfaro and Vishnu Reddy. Roberto and Vishnu are both at the University of Arizona. Roberto is a systems and industrial engineer, while Vishnu is a planetary scientist. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello. So, Roberto, I'll start with you. You've been interested in space junk for quite some time now. Um, Do you want to start by giving us some background on the problem? Let me, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me in this podcast. My pleasure to talk to you. And uh, let me just uh, get started saying that uh, we're in a new space age, which implies that more and more uh, commercial and government agency are putting space uh, spacecrafts in orbits, right? And uh, of course, uh, the more uh, or um, the more spacecraft you have, for a lot of reasons, you can be, uh, you know, observing our planets for climate reasons, for resources reasons, or just simply communication and GPS, which we might seem not to. You know, uh, be able to function without it anymore in the in the, in the current age. Um, so the more spacecraft you have in orbits, the more the space became congested, and sometimes the military likes to say contested, right? And of course, uh, you know, just to give an idea, you know, SpaceX with Starlink is putting uh, thousands and thousands of uh, small satellites for communication. 
Um, there are other uh, agents like uh, commercial entities like uh, Planet uh, and a few others that are planning to put uh, mega constellations. Okay, so you understand that the space is becoming more and more congested, and uh, and the problem is that there are a couple of problems here. First of all, uh, you know you have to allocate the space around orbital space on Earth, which is getting, for, a lot, for, for these reasons, more and more you know, tie. And this also opens the, uh, opens the stage also to potential collisions, you know, if it is not managed, uh, you know, uh, properly. Now, collision generally, as you can imagine, generates a lot of uh, uh, what we call space junk, which is basically fragments, pieces of satellites that then can cause harm to others, functional spacecrafts, right? And, and that's what we really uh, call, call junk. An example was in 2007 when there was a collision between an Iridium satellite and a, and a, and a, and a Russian satellite, which created, increased, uh, you know, tremendously the amount of fragments in orbits that then, you know, need to be tracked, otherwise they, they cause uh, harm. Um, of course, uh, the more subject, uh, the more objects uh, you, you put, you know, the more junk you might uh, create, uh, and uh, and then you you might get into what we call Kessler syndrome, which is basically a phenomenon where you know uh, the amount of junk around the Earth reaches points where it creates more and more junk you know, exponentially, and overall you might create quite a bit of problems for satellites, astronauts, mission planners, whatever. So you have to uh, you have to uh, manage somehow those and uh, you know here we are you know as a scientist and engineer studying this problem trying to find solutions to that. Now Vishnu, I'd like to bring you in. Um, let's turn on to lunar space junk specifically. Are we talking more of the same stuff that Roberto just went through, or is it special in some way? Is it different? No, it's uh, pretty much the same. Uh, what we're looking at is that. Uh, we have been exploring the moon for the last 60 years and upper stages and defunct satellites that have tried to get to the moon are still kind of orbiting in that space. And so we don't have quite as much. So, for example, right now we track about a little over 22,000 pieces of debris around the Earth, larger than about a grapefruit. You know, it's about uh, four to six inches across. And the expectation is that there are probably between 300 and 600,000 uh, pieces of debris larger than a golf ball that we don't track, that we would like to track and keep, you know, around the Earth, that is. But if you compare that with the Moon, there is something in the order of about 200 objects. Uh, but the, ch the challenge is that um, it's far away from the Earth, right? Tracking something the size of a grapefruit in Earth orbit is a different uh, problem compared to doing that at lunar distances. So that's why we want to get ahead of the problem rather than waiting for what Roberto said about Kessler syndrome to happen around the moon. We would want to get ahead of the problem and try and start cataloging these objects around the moon so that we would never have to reach the same situation we are around the Earth. Now, so lunar space junk is actually in the news this week because I understand there's a rocket that's predicted to hit the far side of the moon on Friday. And that rocket's actually been the subject of some debate because it was initially reported as belonging to SpaceX, the private space company, uh, and then it was suggested it might be from China, but the Chinese government has denied it. Right. Is this the kind of problem you're hoping to solve? That's right, yeah. So uh, the rocket booster in question 
uh, was originally launched, you know, about uh, seven years ago. And we have a colleague, Bill Gray. Uh, we work with him very closely. And one of Bill's uh, tasks is to uh, make sure that these lunar uh, pieces of junk, they are not uh, mistaken for asteroids by uh, telescopes surveying for near-Earth asteroids that come close to the Earth. So Bill routinely checks if any piece of uh, lunar junk is interacting with either the Earth or the Moon. And in early January, uh, he realized that uh, this particular booster, which he thought at that time was a SpaceX booster, uh, was going to impact the Moon in early March. And uh, he put out a call, we observed it, we provided additional observations that confirmed the impact in early March. And the, the challenge is that in 2015, when, when this um, booster was first started tracking, uh, we don't have much information. So the current catalog assets maintained by the Space Force uh, has only objects where you can assign the object to a specific launch. So if we don't know where the object came from, it is not put in the catalog. You know what I mean? So you have to have a specific launch associated with each piece of junk. And you can see the problem right there. We haven't been uh, able to track uh, space junk around the moon uh, even till today, right? Even now we struggle to track because it's so far away. So nobody was keeping track of which launch this particular booster came from, except, you know, some guesswork went into uh, figuring out, okay, this, you know, object's orbit aligns with, you know, a SpaceX uh, launch for Discover satellite, you know? So that's about, it's anecdotal. It's not like was confirmed or anything like that. So Bill did the best he could. And uh, eventually, uh, when we started paying attention to it, we, you know, another colleague of mine uh, contacted SpaceX to get a comment about whether they can confirm it, and they started pushing back and they said, like, hey, you know, are you sure if this is ours? Which led to another email thread with folks at JPL, another colleague of ours, uh, John Giorgini, and he looked into it and he basically said, this might actually be uh, an upper stage from Chang'e 5T1 because that coincides with the launch of, you know, uh, this specific rocket and the booster seems to be similar. So there was this kind of debate between is it SpaceX or is it Chinese, right? This, this was the big thing. And of course, you know, the Chinese, you know, put out a statement saying that this is not our booster. But I think that there was a case of lost in translation where the Chinese thought we were referring to the Chang'e 5 mission, which was actually a lunar sample return mission. Uh, the booster that we had assigned this launch to was Chang'e 5 T1, which is a technology demonstrator, which had happened earlier than the sample return mission. So there was some lost in translation. The Chinese were denying something that we never attributed it to them in the first place. Okay, so that was a confusion. So um, one of the things we do at the university is to identify objects based on their spectral signature. Uh, basically, uh, the light reflected off the surface of these rocket bodies. And you can uh, tell uh, signatures of differences in paint from different rocket bodies. So SpaceX uses a certain paint, uh, the Chinese use a certain paint, and of course the age of the paint also matters. If, if you put stuff in space, uh, exposing to the harsh space environment uh, ages the, um, the paint as well. So we were able to observe the moon impactor booster, we call it, Okay, because at that time there was still the debate. We observed it, got its spectrum, and then we observed a SpaceX booster 
of the similar make as the one that Bill thought, okay? But we're still in Earth orbit, right? You can see SpaceX is launching every other week. So we have several boosters that are still in Earth orbit uh, of the same manufacturing, same paint from the original Discover launch. So we observed that one. And we also observed a Chinese booster that is in Earth orbit of a similar make as the Chang'e 5T1. And so we had three spectra, one of the Moon Impactor, one of the SpaceX, and one of the uh, basically Long March 3C upper stage, which was the rocket the Chinese used for the Chang'e 5T1. And we were able to tell that the spectrum of the Chinese matches much better the moon, lunar impactor than the SpaceX. So that's how we were able to independently say, at least the data match, whether it's a, it's a coincidence or not, you know, the spectrum looks very similar to Chinese than SpaceX. So it's a fascinating piece of detective work, really. But uh, I think, you know, going back to some of Roberta's points, you know, as they become more and more space actors, uh, it's going to become more and more difficult to to track down who might be responsible for this. I mean, in 2015, 2016, there were, I don't know, perhaps on order of a dozen different entities that were capable of launching things. As we move to the new space era, that's going to get even even bigger, isn't it? Right, yeah. It, there's always a challenge, you know. Uh, we would like to encourage exploration of space by every nation, right? Because it's 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 progress. It's good for STEM, uh, but at the same time, it's it's unless you put resources towards tackling a problem before it becomes a you know a, a catastrophic uh, a challenge. You know, if you have a Kessler effect uh, happen in uh, on the Earth, we would not be able to launch satellites into orbit because the debris ring around the Earth would be or the debris cloud. Uh, it'll be like a cage around the Earth where you cannot launch anything without getting hit by something or the other. And so we want to avoid that situation. So I think with opportunity comes responsibility. And I think it's important that, you know, we pursue both avenues with equal, you know, vigor uh, than just trying to go for the opportunity and not forgetting our responsibility of preserving this space, not just for us, but also for future generations. I have an additional comment to that. Um, Keep in mind that the problem of attracting, detecting, characterizing these objects and also classifying as a matter of fact is not an easy one. It's not an easy one because, uh, you know, what you're doing, you are basically sampling uh, the object, observing the object just not continuously because otherwise you would need, uh, you know, more and more resources as uh, you know, as the number of objects goes up, right? Uh, so you're forced to somehow space this information. So now you have to do a lot of detective work using this observation to do association with different type of objects, right? Is it something that, the, also because we don't image the object, that's another problem. You know, the kind of data that we got are basically, because they're far away, you, you have light points of moving space. And then the question is that how do you associate there's a flickering, uh, you know, light points that move in space with uh, specific objects, right? Of course, physics uh, and the laws of physics in general help. You know, we can associate, for example, uh, you know, objects moving in space are subject to laws of gravities. You know, we use them to kind of infer this with uh, probability, what is the trajectory, but also... Uh, you know, material composition affects how much light is reflected as a function of the, the wavelengths. We can use that to identify with some likelihood 
that uh, one object is different than the other, or even what is the state of motion in terms of rotation state of the object? Is it controlled? Is it uncontrolled? Is it tumbling? This kind of thing. But nevertheless, it's it's a tough, tough problem because uh, yeah, it's more like a detective work because you have to exclude different possibilities among quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit about the technology you use to, to, to detect this, because I understand there's, there's sort of a couple of components to it, and they both feed into your particular strengths uh, in, in terms of your academic background. There's one aspect which is detecting something, and then there's another aspect that's figuring out what that something is. What, what sort of equipment do you use to do these, these observations? Uh, so uh, as far as the equipment goes, it's relatively modest. You know, at the university, we have large... Uh, ground-based telescopes, probably uh, some of the largest in the world. Uh, but oftentimes, as you know, uh, the telescopes we need for tracking astronomical objects are different from telescopes you need to track satellites. That's number one. Number two is that uh, traditional uh, astronomical telescopes are classically scheduled in the sense that you would write a proposal six months ahead of the time, and then you would make a science case or justify uh, we didn't know about this in you know uh, this object six months ago. So what we Roberto and I have done is that we have uh, uh, developed a suite of small telescopes. These are uh, typically sub one meter uh, flash telescopes. There, that's the aperture of the uh, primary uh, mirror, uh, and these are built by our students. In fact, our undergraduate students have built these telescopes themselves as part of their uh, senior design project. And so uh, we have uh, student-built, student-run uh, observatories where we uh, use those to track uh, objects in cisgender space. It's, a, it's, it's relatively remarkable how much you can do with small telescopes. I always feel that telescope is a tool. Uh, it's only good as the person who uses it. Uh, and so uh, we're very proud of our students uh, who put good work, uh, you know, good use out of these uh, modest-sized telescopes to uh, squeeze all the signal uh, we can to detect these objects. So, for example, this uh, uh, booster that's going to impact the moon. So it had two passes of the Earth before it could impact. One was in January, so late January, around 20th, and then there was one in February, early February. Uh, and after that, it would be so close to the sun uh, that we wouldn't be able to see it from early February till early March when it would impact. You could still see it with radar, but it's too close to the sun to see it uh, optically. So I had told my students, and this was before the Chinese uh, versus SpaceX debate started, uh, that we should get some spectra. And uh, they were like, not too convinced because they said like, we know it's SpaceX, so why are we wasting a whole evening trying to do this? And I told them, I said, anytime you have an object, uh, where this is the last chance you have to observe it. You have, you know, you have to observe it to get any data before it's going to disappear for good. We should try and collect data on it. Okay, so we all got on Zoom. So the telescopes are operated remotely. Uh, we all got on Zoom. So we had uh, two graduate students and an undergrad, um, and and of course, you know, this is like we started observing at sunset, and we would observe at 11 p.m. or so. And this telescope is on campus. It's between two stadiums. You know, there's a softball stadium and there's a uh, American football stadium, lights are shining, the wind is really bad. Yeah, we could barely see the satellite. Uh, and my grad student, Adam, was asking, is it even worth doing this? Because the wind was so bad, we could barely get the signal. I said, take data, because even if you get 10% of it usable, that's good enough for us to do science. 
And of course, they took the data, they processed it, and they sent me a spectrum. It looked okay, but when the whole you know, story about this possibly being Chinese exploded in the news media, they were like excited. I was like, oh my God, I said, we're so glad we took the data because they were not convinced originally. Because they were, you know, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it was on a Monday night, there was school night, right? They were, had classes, they had other stuff to do. And they, we were all convinced that this was SpaceX. So there was, so there was no scientific reason for us to collect, not even like the detective work we were talking about. There was not a rationale, and they were, you know, they were uh, right to push back against it. But you know, I had to convince them. I said, like, take the data. We might not do anything about it. You know, uh, that's okay. You know, so but but anyway, so they were glad they did because we were the only ones to have the data to do this work anywhere in the world. You know, minus this, there was always this debate between the orbit. Uh, that the Chinese were saying it is on versus what we had, you know what I mean? So this is an additional piece of information that you can kind of bring it closer to a conclusion that it is likely Chinese. We're not sure if it's specifically the Chang'e 5 T1, but the paint seems to be very similar to a Chinese booster. And Roberto, you know, what's what's your rule on that? After Vishnu and his students have, have uh, spotted these objects and taken some data, where do you come in on this project? Uh, well, uh, I am, I would say, the data processing uh, and inference side of the equation, right? Um, so Vishnu collects the data, reduce it, and then we have, uh, you know, a variety of tools that we have been developing to, for example, infer orbits, right? Um, you know, together with the Bill Gray, you know, um, we have tools that actually generally tracks, you know, using the latest uh, planetary defense data, uh, you know, the flag objects that are not asteroids, right, and it's artificial. We have, uh, we have developing, we are developing basically the first academic uh, ex-geo, we call it catalog, that is a tracking object and maintaining, right, maintaining custody of object in the system of space. As I mentioned, in this case, we use laws of physics, you know, as well as artificial intelligence system to try to understand what these objects are, are doing beyond just the orbit, right? Um, and, and for example, we're developing uh, methods where, you know, the spectra uh, taken from, uh, from vision can be processed by artificial intelligence agents based on deep learning, where they can basically uniquely uh, you know, identify the objects you know, for that observation. And so how long is this project meant to run, and, and what do you hope to accomplish by the end of it? Will you have a full catalog, or will you just have started? Okay, so the status is that uh, we, uh, we have an initial you know, catalog. Of course, to feed the catalog, you need in quite a bit of data, right? And at this point, I believe, uh, you know, the the, you know, the observatories that we built here, the sensors that we have, the vision operates, are the only one that really have been uh, tracking objects, yeah, you know, um, in the cis lunar space, very close. I mean, other people are trying, of course, you know, but I think, uh, you know, vision developed some specific techniques that, can, uh, you know, the support, you know, getting closer and closer to the moon, even if, uh, you know, the lights, the background lights is extremely, extremely high. Um, however, you know, what we're doing, our approaches is, uh, 
NASA has been uh, has been working on collecting data, uh, trying to map out the near Earth objects, which are natural uh, asteroids, you know, that fly uh, the near Earth space, and of course some of them cross also the Moon, right? But in taking all this data, and there's quite a bit of survey, you know, uh, around the world, including also amateurs that co- continuously observe the sky. Uh, occasionally flag artificial objects in the system of space. So we take this data and we use them to build up, uh, you know, this catalog. So we have the first instantiation of that. Um, and, uh, you know, we plan uh, basically uh, to, uh, you know, continue building up. Uh, right? We are, I would say, in the phase alpha, right, where we're validating things. We have tools that, of course, you know, that be in operational in the sense that, like, you know, we track uh, objects and uh, how we determine the orbit trajectories with the spectrum, things like that. But in the meantime, we'll also, you know, try to do, uh, you know, maintain custody of objects that we can observe using existing the you know, planetary defense survey. Well, good luck to you in, in the duration of this project. Hopefully, perhaps we'll check back with you in a, in a few years to see how the, the tracking of this these objects in cislunar space is going. And uh, yeah, good, good luck to you. Yeah, thank you. Textbooks and other learning materials are invaluable to both teachers and students of physics. But no author is perfect, and errors do creep into books, curricula, and exams. Physics World's Laura Hiscott speaks to a physics teacher about the sometimes Byzantine process of getting errors corrected, and why some pupils in the UK are still being taught that light is bouncy. I'm joined down the line by David Marshall, a primary and secondary school teacher of science, maths and English, who specialises in teaching physics at the sixth form level. He recently wrote a lateral thoughts article for Physics World about finding errors in textbooks and other curriculum materials and the difficulties he faced when trying to get them corrected. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so I guess my, my first question would be, what prompted you to write this article for Physics World? Um, well, I suppose it was the difference really between um, what you experience as a teacher when you're at primary school and what you experience when you're at um, secondary school. There, there are marked differences. I moved to some um, primary teaching in about 2014, 2015, because I had been teaching at a school in which um, in Key Stage 3, they ran it on a Key Stage 2 style curriculum, and I really enjoyed it. And and that's what made me move over to um, primary for most of the time. Uh, and so what were the um, the differences you noticed um, out of interest? Well, the main differences, I would say, is that uh, when you're at a secondary school, you're regarded as a specialist. And um, in secondary schools, I've never been challenged, not once, on my subject knowledge. And nobody would um, um, has ever said to me, are you sure that that's true about maths? Are you sure that that's true about physics? Not once ever in, in the in secondary school. But in primary school, um, as and I've alluded to it in the article, there, there, there tends to be um, amongst um, 
um, a lot of people there, uh, an idea that uh, no primary teachers are specialists. And while it's certainly the case that you would have, um, you know, people can do a degree, for example, in primary education, you do get plenty of experts in different subjects within primary school. Um, but but there, is, there is more of a general attitude that um, if you are in primary school, um, you're not a specialist, you are a generalist. Ah, uh, right. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I'm sure there are lots of... Um lots of people as you say who are who are specialists and that's Absolutely. still important at that age as well um, very much so yes yeah and um, so how often do you actually find mistakes in curriculum materials because you talk about a few instances in the article um but i was wondering like um yeah generally how often you you find these sorts of things uh in um i'd say in it's increasing there's no doubt about that oh, there, really? are, there are certainly many more at, at primary level than there are at secondary level the type of um, errors uh, that you would notice at um at secondary level are often to do with time particularly when it comes to do with science for example um uh, i did um i have um, said to my students at say year, year 9 10 and 11 and also above that there are things in the textbooks that we have in the class that are effectively out of date. I can give you an example of one, for example, um, that the the mass of a star before it collapses, say, to a neutron star or a black hole. In some books, it is given in, in a very, very um, a particular way. One, one particular textbook I can think of said that if it's um, roughly two masses of, of the sun, it might collapse to a neutron star. And if it's three masses of the sun, it might collapse to a black hole. Now, of course, those details, as any, any, any physicists will, will know, uh, are not quite right. No. So um, I did point that out to, to my students. But, um, of course, I have to teach them for a particular um, exam board. So at the time... Um, I pointed out to them that, um, you know, this is the information you have to know for the exam. Ah, uh, OK. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about science, I suppose, is that because knowledge is constantly advancing and we may yes. find things we previously thought weren't true, then it sometimes takes a while for that knowledge to sort of trickle down. Yes. And, it, and as you know, of course, it's changing. Of, of all the subjects in physics, it is changing constantly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And um I guess I was wondering when you find an error, like how do you go about getting that corrected? Um, well, um, I gave an example in um, in the article that um, I, I started uh, a new AQA curriculum came in and we had a new textbook with it. So of course, as it's brand new, um, you I, I took the textbook home, I read it cover to cover, I I did um, I did all the questions in it to to, to get answers to the calculations. And that really um, I don't brought it home to me that there were just a few too many mistakes for it to be <laughs> um, something you could leave alone. So I um, rang, I rang the publisher and I, and I said, um, I found um, um, some mistakes. And of course, there was a groan down the other end of the line and it was <laughs> because there were so many. Um, and shortly afterwards, it just so happens that we had uh, a moderation meeting in Cardiff because I was working in Wales at the time. And um, a number of other teachers had spotted the same errors um, and the number of errors that I had. Um, I also indicated to the um, and the publisher that there was um, um, an error, a fundamental error in, in um, 
subatomic physics, the facts of subatomic physics. Um, that um, came back with a separate correction from the author. But the most important thing about that is that um, shortly after the telephone call and shortly after the moderation meeting, um, we all received um, a comprehensive um, uh, list of errata. So they did something about it very quickly because they had no choice. There's an exam at the end of it. So the children have to know that what is in the book is correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's really good that um, it got corrected so quickly in that case. Um, yes, but I, yeah, I I was curious because you also mentioned another instance in your article um, about how um, there were mistakes in another curriculum, um, a new one that was introduced in the school. Um, but when you when you tried to contact people um, and get it fixed, um, you kept being referred to other people and then going around in circles. Um, what do you think led to that happening with that particular curriculum? Um, well, it, it, perhaps, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but perhaps it's got something to do with what I mentioned previously about the way that um, these things are dealt with at primary level compared to secondary. Because when I initially, um, I told my line manager at the school and I, I said that this curriculum is full of mistakes. I've, ne I've never seen so many mistakes in my life. And it wasn't just uh, mistakes to do with, with facts um, in, the, the, in English, um, grammar, punctuation, spelling, even layouts um, that was all over the place. There, there were a number of, um, of other problems. So I, having raised it with my line manager, my line manager said, well, can you tell the subject leads? Now, it just so happens in this case, the subject leads were not specialists um, because we had we had geography and history, but there was also a science element to it. Now, at that time, at that time, we were not using this science curriculum that had been produced by this academy. But I was asked by the head teacher if I could review the um, science curriculum. And when when I read the science curriculum, my heart just sank. It, 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 some of the facts were, were just, well, some of the, they're not even facts, some of the details, let's say, um, were, were absolutely untrue. So I, I reported back um, to the head teacher. But of course, this was at the mixture in the middle of the time, rather, when we had um, lockdown. There was a, um, we, uh, during lockdown, a lot of schools in primary schools weren't using their standard curriculum and we had to change to something else. So there was a, a, a period of several months where we, we um, couldn't make any changes. But of course, later on in the year, um, we um, did return to school and we went back to this curriculum. And that's when I raised the issues again. So I had to... Um, to um, refer to the same people again. And when a little was happening, I contacted the director of education of the group of academies, um, um, but I didn't get a reply from that person. Then we found out that a much, much bigger organization, namely Pearson, was going to take over at least two parts of the curriculum. And of course, Pearson um, have, have an obligation as it's such a you know distinguished um, um, company to get things right and that's that's when I was put through to the marketing people and then that bounced back until eventually eventually I got through to the people who are in charge of the um, curriculum at Pearson. Ah uh, right yeah that sounds like a long convoluted journey to getting it fixed did it get fixed in the end? It did and I sent I sent details of 
um, um, just one unit in one year of one particular curriculum, uh, which is geography, which also covered um, covered parts of the science that you would normally teach in primary and secondary schools. And they assured me that um, all of those details would be passed on to the um, the primary team to sort out, and that all of the aspects of it will be read through by their team at Pearson. I also pointed out um, the rather alarming um, aspects of um, um, you know, other other um, years and other units, and they, again, they assured me that that would be dealt with. Oh, that's that's good to hear. <laughs> it's very important. Um that these things get corrected. Um, and um, yeah, I, I suppose I remember at one point in your article, you quoted a description that you were given of the curriculum um, just before it was introduced. And that description said that it was written by um, practicing classroom teachers and yes. um, assisted by subject experts and academics and people. So that sounds like a lot of people kind of contributing to it and like overseeing the development of it. So um, I was just wondering, like, how do you have any idea how these sorts of errors can creep in when there are so many people um, looking at it who you'd hope would spot these things before publication? Well, there's no doubt that um, I've been in the situation before, not just in education, where um, you have one or two people leading a project and it usually ends up in being one person who's particularly leading a project, maybe supported by other people. And I'm, I'm sure that um, um, everybody who's worked in any business knows that sometimes uh, a project has its own momentum. And it's, it's often um, different um, to um, something uh, somebody rather checking all the facts and you know, being very studious and being very diligent about checking all the details. Um, there was a lot of, uh, let's say, casualness about the, the contents and about the, I mean, I, I mentioned, for example, um, the, the, the detail about Mars, um, whoever wrote it, Mars not having an atmosphere. You know, that, that was... You know, you think, what? You know, good goodness me. You know, when you, when you consider, for example, um, those who study physics and those who study astronomy, um, they've even lost a spacecraft because of Mars's atmosphere. But here we have in a primary setting um, telling the children that, oh, no, Mars doesn't have an atmosphere. And I'm quite sure quite a lot of these these young people already know that Mars has, has an atmosphere. So that's, that's a quick, a particularly stunning example of the errors and also it's um, um i think when, when also when somebody has an idea and let's face it it's not a bad idea to to um produce something um uh, which is straightforward and has a whole range of different materials for usage in the classroom and uh, maybe worksheets and things um, like that and then to spread this idea around on the face of it that's great you know what, what which teachers don't want that but the the content is key it has to be um, um, accurate and it has to be reliable and I'm sh- quite sure that all the teachers out there and uh, members of the Institute of Physics wouldn't want to be in the situation where they're given something that they know is wrong because there's no way in all honesty that I could I could teach something that was absolutely wrong in a no, class you of know, course I'd, not. I'd have to say no this is wrong and I did indeed tell my my um, it was year, um, sorry, seven year olds at the time I did say well actually sorry this is wrong and I have to correct it on the fly, as it were. Yeah, wow. And that sort of um, leads me on to my next question, really, which was that, um, I mean, when I was at school, um, I kind of generally assumed that 
textbooks and curriculum materials were correct because obviously that's what you're given to learn from and stuff. And I do remember a few instances of um, being given sheets of alternative answers because the, say, um, the answers section had um, wrong answers to some Mm. of the calculation questions and stuff like that. But um, generally, I just thought what's in a textbook must be right. Um, So um, I was wondering how you kind of address that with your students and explain that like even textbooks are not 100% reliable and how you kind of go about that other aspect of critical thinking and how you can find reliable information um, and addressing that with your students. Um, well, it's an extremely important topic, especially these days. Um, with the advent of social media, and um, we, we've seen uh, a lot of it, especially in the past four or five years. Um, um, I mean, things attributed to presidents of certain countries saying, saying things and um, the, um, lots of um, organisations and, and spreading um, false details about, um, say, COVID and so on, which have had a, you know, a really serious effect on society. So for, for teachers especially, um, we always have to plan in, um, especially when children are doing research, for example, um, like for GCSE or A-level, we always have to plan in that you must have sources and you have more than one source and that they've got to be reliable sources. So we, we, teach, we teach them that um, your sources, reliability is very important. Um, everybody makes mistakes. All organisations make mistakes. And we know that if you've got a selection of sources and and they're trustworthy, let's say, for example, the BBC is, is usually a trustworthy source. The Institute of Physics, no doubt, is a, is a superb um, um, resource. Or, or for, for example, the Royal Society of Chemistry or any one of those. These are all great, great resources. Um, we do tell children, for example, um, um, that um, well, they still use Wikipedia, of course, but we, if, we, if they do use Wikipedia, we tell them to go to the source material, which is referenced within the Wikipedia article. So it's very important to train them in the idea that um, when you're having an argument about something, you must also be able to um, uh, apply your knowledge about the sources. It's, it's absolutely crucial. So if you have those examples from the textbook and those examples from the curriculum that that's what we were um, given out for primary school, um, you really have to be um, uncertain about your sources. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's so important, as, as you mentioned, that, um, yeah, from that, that ripple effect from, you know, just a, a few mistakes and a textbook and how that kind of applies to broader issues. Yes, I can provide, provide one example actually from um, a, a, a common one which which stayed with me for some years until um, I was studying physics at school. Is that I, I when I was t- at school, somebody told me that if you have two cars heading towards each other at fifty kilometers an hour, it's like one car driving into a brick wall at one hundred kilometers an hour. This unusually has spread right throughout the world, and even MythBusters, the um, the program. Um, had a whole episode on that and one of the hosts of Mythbusters um, believed that. Now, of course, you know, um, anyone who studied physics um, and has has calculated a question will know that that is not true. But it's one of these things that is like apocryphal tales that that filters through and stays with people, which you have to maybe knock out of the pupils when they get to their their, um, GCSE or A-level studies. 
Well, that's great. Yeah, um, I'm glad that you got those errors corrected. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope that you don't find any more. But um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I will. <laughs> um, you can read David's full article on the Physics World website. Just look out for the headline, Error Carried Forward, Why We Need to Be Vigilant About Textbooks. Thanks for being on the podcast, David. My pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to David Marshall, Laura Hiscott, Vishnu Reddy, Roberto Fufaro, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out David's article and all the other exciting content on the Physics World website. There, you'll also find a feature article about how scientists are seeing the human body in a new light, thanks to a unique synchrotron imaging technique. Just look for the headline, Drawing Up a Google Earth of the Human Body. Physics World.